Welcome to you all. Our call to worship is taken from Psalm 95, and the words are on the screen. If you'd like to respond by saying the words in yellow, please. Come, let's raise a joyful song to the Lord, a shout of triumph to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving and sing him psalms of triumph. For the Lord is a great God, a great King over all gods. The farthest places of the earth are in his hands, and the folds of the hills are his. The sea is his. He made it. The dry land fashioned by his hands is his. Come, let's throw ourselves at his feet in homage. Let's kneel before the Lord who made us. For he is our God. We are his people. We, the flock, he shepherds. We began our service with the beginning of Psalm 95. We listened to the rest of the psalm from the second half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they'd seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they haven't known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This evening we continue our journey through Exodus and we've reached chapter 17. This is reading chapter 17 verses 1 to 16. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. 
Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at work against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Exodus 17 gives us two very different episodes in the saga of Israel's journey through the wilderness. Linked on the basis that they both took place somewhere called Rephidim, though we can only guess where that might have been precisely. In the first episode, the people of Israel are grumbling. Again. Then as now, God's people have always liked to grumble. Last time it was about food. This time it's about drinking water. Not for the first time. They've had this kind of gripe before. Straight after crossing the Red Sea, they were complaining because the water at a place called Mara was bitter. And that situation was miraculously resolved when Moses threw a bit of wood into the water and it became sweet enough to drink. Then there was the incident Jack looked at last week when they were hungry and the Lord provided for them by giving them manna in the wilderness. This week, arguably their plight is the most serious as they have nothing to drink at all until God tells Moses to strike a rock with his staff. And then water flows out so that God provides for the people once again. You'd think that having seen God step in and provide for them and take care of them and meet their needs time after time after time, they would have learned to trust God by now. But no, every time something goes wrong, every time they encounter a setback, rather than learning from God's provision in the past and so being prepared to trust him for the future, Instead, they become ever more cantankerous. This time, they're ready to stone Moses. They demand to see some evidence, some indication that God is really present with them. Well, if God hadn't been with them, they would have perished long before this. But it seems that whatever God did, it was never enough to give them a secure trust in his presence, to believe that he would provide for them. They kept on looking back to the good old days. The good old days when they were slaves in Egypt. It's ironic, isn't it? In the second incident, Israel is under attack. 
Moses put Joshua in command of the battle, while he goes up on a hill with Aaron and Hur to pray. And we read that as long as Moses held out his arms and lifted up his hands before the Lord in prayer, Israel prevailed, the battle went their way. But if he got tired and he felt like he needed a rest, then the flow of the battle turned against the people. That's quite a pressure on Moses up there on the hill. The situation was resolved by Aaron and her finding a rock for Moses to sit down on. And then they stood either side of him, supporting his arms in prayer, until Israel finally won the battle. It's a story that underscores the importance of prayer and reminds us as well that we are more effective in God's service if we work together as a team. Had Moses gone up there all by himself and carried the weight of praying for victory all by himself, then Israel would have been defeated because he hadn't got the strength to keep his hands lifted in prayer all day. It's only because Aaron and Hur were there with him, supporting him as he supported the army in prayer, that Israel was delivered. When it comes to doing stuff for God, don't make the mistake of thinking you can manage all by yourself. Other people are there to be with you and support you and help you. But there's one other thing that links these two episodes, apart from their common location at Rephidim, and that's the role that the staff of God plays in both incidents. It's with this staff that Moses strikes the rock so that water comes out, and it's this staff he takes with him up the mountain when he goes to pray for the people. So he's not just holding his hands up in prayer, he's holding this big stick up in prayer all day as well. Obviously that increases the weight that he's got to carry, which explains why Moses needed help. But the staff represented the sovereignty of God over his people and their situation. And raising the staff before God in this way expresses the exaltation of God in his sovereignty over the battle as Moses prays. That's part of what prayer is. We are declaring the sovereignty of God and asking for it to be made known and revealed in the circumstances for which we're praying. And the staff represented that. So this is quite an important bit of wood, really. When Moses is told to strike the rock with his staff, the staff is identified as, you know, that one you used to strike the Nile with when you were back in Egypt. And when you read back over the account of the plagues in Egypt, you see that the staff plays a key role in lots of them. In the first plague, Moses strikes the Nile with the staff and all the waters turn to blood. In the second plague, he holds the staff in his hand and stretches it out over the river Nile and masses and masses of frogs come up out of the water and invade the land of Egypt. In the third plague, Moses strikes the dust of the earth. And the dust turns into a plague of gnats that afflict all the people and the animals in the land. Then he manages out the staff for a little while. It's in the seventh plague that he stretches his staff up towards the sky. And God sends thunder and lightning and hail, which beats down everything growing in the fields. For the eighth plague, he stretches the staff out over the land of Egypt and the Lord sends an east wind to bring a plague of locusts on the land so that everything that hasn't been destroyed by the hail is eaten by the locusts. And it's this same staff that Moses has in his hand when he stretches it out over the Red Sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can cross on dry land. It really was a remarkable bit of wood. 
really. So where did Moses get it? That's the question. How did he get his hands on it? Where did he find it? How did he come across such a powerful weapon? And the answer is, he had it in his hands before God called him to bring the people up out of Egypt. When the Lord appeared to Moses and told him to go back to Egypt and rescue his people, Moses wasn't at all keen on the idea. Okay, suppose I go back, he says, and they think I'm talking rubbish. Suppose they don't believe me. Suppose they don't believe that I've seen you or don't believe that you'll do what you say. What if they just tell me I'm making it all up and they don't listen? And God says to him, what have you got in your hand? A staff, he says. God says, throw it on the ground. And when Moses throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. And he runs away from it. And God says, reach out your hand and pick the snake up by the tail, which is a pretty risky thing to do, really. But he does it, picks the snake up by the tail, and it turns back into the staff again. And God says, now, do that in front of your people, and they'll believe you. So Moses does that trick with the staff in front of the Israelites, and they believe him. He does the trick again in front of Pharaoh, and it doesn't have the same effect that time. So yes, it was an amazing piece of wood. But Moses had it first. Before he met God and was called by God, it was just his shepherd's staff. Something he used all the time, every day, because he was a shepherd. It's what he did for a living. He looked after his father-in-law's flock of sheep. I say it was just a shepherd's staff, but a, a shepherd's staff or his club was an essential piece of a shepherd's kit. Philip Keller, in his reflections on Psalm 23, describes the staff as a common and universal piece of equipment of the primitive shepherd. Listen to what he says. Each shepherd boy, from the time he first starts to tend his father's flock, takes special pride in the selection of a rod and staff exactly suited to his own size and strength. He goes into the bush and selects a young sapling which is dug from the ground. And this is then carved and whittled down with great care and patience. The enlarged base of the sapling where its trunk joins the roots is shaped into a smooth, rounded head of hard wood. And the sapling itself is shaped to fit exactly into the owner's hand. And after he completes it, the shepherd boy spends hours practicing with this club, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It becomes his main weapon of defence for both himself and his sheep. The rod, in fact, was an extension of the owner's own right arm. It stood as a symbol of his strength, his power, his authority in any situation. And Keller describes how in Kenya he worked with a herdsman there to dislodge a boulder and roll it down a slope. He says, as we heaved and pushed against the great rock, a cobra coiled beneath it suddenly came into view ready to strike. In a split second, the alert shepherd boy lashed out with his club, killing the snake on the spot. The weapon had never left his hand, even while we worked on the rock. Shepherds had 
their rod and their staff in their hand at all times. They slept with it. It was always there. They never let it go to rescue sheep, to beat off attackers, to support them as they went their way through the wilderness. It was the most basic, fundamental bit of equipment that a shepherd ever had. And that is what Moses had in his hand when God says, what have you got in your hand? My staff. It was Moses' staff first. His principal weapon and tool, something he used all the time, every day. And when he uses it under God's direction, amazing things happen. And so while the next to 17, Moses describes it as the staff of God. I'm going up the hill with the staff of God, he says. It really was Moses' staff. It was his first. It had always been his. But given all the different ways that God had used that staff, you can understand why Moses came to think of it as God's staff. Yet there's a lesson for us in that. The staff was for Moses an ordinary part of his everyday equipment as a shepherd. Yet put in God's hands, God used it to achieve extraordinary, even miraculous things. It was and always remained Moses' staff. But when he used it in God's service under God's direction, it became God's staff, a potent and powerful weapon. His authority, his power, his strength offered to God and used by God to do amazing things. And that's how God works. All of you, all of us, have ordinary, everyday skills, knowledge, experience, bits of equipment that you use every day to do your job without even thinking. And God says, why don't you let me use that? Why don't you dedicate that to my service? Why don't you do this for me? In my name. Why don't you do this as one of my servants? If you let me have that skill, that piece of equipment, that is going to make a difference for my kingdom if you use it my way. Never underestimate how God might use you or what he might do through you using the ordinary everyday gifts and resources at your disposal. Being a Christian is about doing ordinary things for an extraordinary God and seeing the difference that makes. This was an ordinary shepherd's staff. It was nothing but a bit of wood. But when used under God's direction, look at the impact that it had. How can God use you, the person that you are, the skills and resources that you have at his disposal? At his service, what does God want to do through you? That victory over Amalek was the last but one time that Moses used this staff. After the victory over the Amalekites, it was put away. It was stored with all the holy things that belonged in the tabernacle and was carted around with them as part of you know, God's holy stuff, that bit of equipment. It was one of those things that was kept in the presence of the Lord. Years later, maybe decades later, we don't know. The people again found themselves in a place where there was no water to drink. And they were grumbling. Surprise, surprise. Moses was told to take the staff from the presence of the Lord 
and to speak to a rock in front of the whole Israelite community. And on his word, the rock would pour out water. Moses went, fetched the staff out of the tabernacle. But instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock with the staff. And water did come out of the rock. But for whatever reason, Moses' act of striking the rock rather than speaking to it was seen to be dishonouring to God. That had big repercussions for Moses. Because of that incident, he never got to enter the promised land himself. I've always felt a bit sorry for him in that respect. He put up with him for 40 years, for goodness sake. And, you know, you step up once and God says, that's it, you're staying out. I'm sorry about that. I'm I'm not the only one thinking God was perhaps a little bit harsh here. And the problem is, it's very difficult to figure out why striking the rock with the staff instead of speaking to the rock was such a serious error to commit. It had worked okay last time. First time he struck the rock and that was what he's supposed to do and it was all right. Second time, speaking instead of strike, it's, well, if God says something, I suppose you better follow the instructions to the letter. And there's no limit to the different kind of possible explanations or speculations about why it was such a serious issue to strike the rock rather than speak to the rock. But I wonder, you know, I wonder whether over the years Moses had forgotten that this was just a bit of wood. That's all it was. Over the years it had been kept in the presence of the Lord and it had become venerated as something holy, something special, something unique because of all the amazing things that God had done through it. And it was easy after all this time to think that it was something about the staff itself that gave it all those legendary powers. I've got this in my hand and I can do anything with it now. Maybe that's why Moses struck the rock with a staff rather than speaking to the rock as he was told because he confused the God who did these things with a bit of wood that did these things. And that's the dishonour that's given to God by trusting in the staff rather than in the God. And if you start to think that that bit of wood has special powers, then you're veering off into the realm of of magic and manipulation. It stops being Moses' staff. It it stops being God's staff. It becomes this, this special thing that can do anything. And if Moses is thinking that way, you can see how he might be seen as dishonoring God. The focus is on the staff, the bit of wood, not on the God whose power provided the water. We're not so much into kind of magical objects or fetishes or, you know, little things that we invest with special power, except that, you know, certain ways of doing things become very important to us. Certain areas become particularly important to us. Special rituals that need to be followed if we think things are going to be right. And it's easy for these things to become the focus rather than God. That's a dangerous path to go down. We are ordinary people with ordinary gifts and abilities and possessions that we are called to employ in the service of an extraordinary God. And we need to remember that it's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. 
It's not about the gifts that we have or or the resources we have at our disposal. It's about the God who calls us, equips us, and invests the ordinary things we do with his grace and power. But it's all about him. Not about us or the tools that we use. He remains in charge and we do his bidding. What's special about us? What's special about what we do or how we do it? It's God. The holy God. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who equips us. It's his grace and power that makes anything we do effective. It's him we serve. He says to you, what's in your hand? What are you doing? What have you got? What can you do? Let me use it. Use it in my service. And see what I can do through you. For my kingdom. He is the holy God. And whatever we do, we do in his name, at his bidding, and for his glory.